Um, if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5 again. Hebrews chapter 5. And we're going to go ahead and again read the entire passage. Um, and then we will come back and sort of review what we looked at the last time we were together. Uh, hit quite a lot. Um, we were sort of all over the place uh, as far as seeing um, the threads that Hebrews 5 pulls on throughout Scripture. But it came to uh, bring a point, uh, came to a point to show that Christ, as the Son of God, is the only one who can fulfill the role of priest. He is the only one who has the right to stand or to sit at the Father's right hand, and He is the only one who has the right to intercede for us because He is the only one who meets that qualification. Um, I wanted to, I uh, went back and, and sort of listened to something that maybe I wasn't as clear on or maybe uh, misspoke a little bit the last time uh, we were here. I, I was talking about the doctrine of the Trinity and talking about how one of the things we understand about the doctrine of the Trinity is, is that it's many of the passages we look at, um, they, they will describe how the, Son is the fa- how the Son is God, how the Father is, is God, and how the Spirit is God. But we don't have clear um, statements from Scripture. And so we talked about how it's somewhat like a, a, what we call a systematic theology conclusion. And I didn't want to give the impression that in any way, shape, or form that I was not saying that the Bible doesn't teach the Trinity. The Bible does teach the Trinity, that there is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And there are several passages that bring that about. But I think I was a little uh, imprecise in my language and what I said, so I wanted to make it abundantly clear. I believe that the Bible teaches that, that there is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons in one God, uh, and that, that the Bible clearly makes that clear to us. And one of the points I was trying to make was understanding the priestly work of God and how He is the Son of God. He is declared to be the eternal Son of God. That is another evidence of His deity, that only God could intercede for sinful men with God. He's the only one on the same plane. Everyone else is created. Everything else is created. So for us to have an advocate before the Father, we need someone who has that same divine nature, and that is, of course, Jesus Christ. So Hebrews chapter 5, in fact, we'll begin in chapter 4, verse 14, because this is Hebrews 5, Hebrews 5 sort of breaks into a a, um, uh, a unit, a, a paragraph there. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. And then this is important. This is what we're going to be spending most of the time this evening looking at. He is without sin. Let us then, having a sinless high priest, this is the conclusion the author of Hebrews is making, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He, a human priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. 
Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And he, also, he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the world of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we again thank you for your word. Uh, Father, we, not only did you give us Christ, not only did Christ accomplish our salvation, not only uh, do we have that, that act completed for all eternity in what he has done, Lord, you also reveal to us the glories of what Christ has done. You do not leave us to um, grope in the darkness or to try to find our ways or understand what all is happening in the redemption that Christ has given us. But, Father, you explain it to us in your word. We thank you, Father, for your word that's given to us. We thank you that you moved in the heart of the author of this book that, that he would write your words. And, Father, may we come to them today as they are, as they are truly your words. May we seek to be encouraged and challenged by them this evening as we marvel at the greatness of our high priest, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in His name, pleading His blood. Amen. So what we are looking at here, we've been spending some time looking at the topic of Melchizedek. And we looked in Genesis uh, and saw this sort of cryptic, undefined figure that sort of comes out of nowhere. And Abraham pays ties to him. We see him described there in Genesis. And then we don't really hear anything else about him until we come to Psalm 110. And we looked at Psalm 110, and there he is mentioned again. And then for thousands of years, there's nothing said about him until we come to this book in the book of Hebrews. And, and one of the main focuses, the themes of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better, or I think I, I coined the term the betterness of Christ. And we looked in, in Hebrews chapter 1 how he's shown to be better than angels. And, and one of the things that is 
concluded about Christ is he is better than Melchizedek himself. And uh, I think the last time we met, we read all through from Hebrews chapter 5 to Hebrews chapter 7. And then we're going to sort of be unpacking chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7 um, as we go through this. And so as you can see, we've made a lot of headway. We're still in chapter 5, but that's okay. So again, just to quickly review, we talked about the significance of Melchizedek. He's an obscure figure in the Old Testament. We don't know much about him from what we see in the Old Testament. But it's in the book of Hebrews that his significance is on display. And he, Melchizedek, serves to demonstrate the superiority of Christ, particularly the superior priestly work that Christ has. When you think of the Old Testament and you think of priests... What name comes to your mind immediately? You don't think of Melchizedek. You think of Aaron or Levi. You think of the Levitical priesthood. But actually one of the arguments that the writer of Hebrews is going to show us is that Melchizedek and and that priesthood is even greater than the Levitical priesthood. And then he's going to drive to the point that Christ himself is greater than Melchizedek. Melchizedek's priestly office is demonstrates the superiority of Christ's priestly office. Now, what we've been looking at here in Hebrews chapter 5 is the the writer describes what the role of a priest was. He was someone who had to be appointed. He was someone who served to intercede between people. He offered gifts and sacrifices for sin, uh, acting on behalf of men in relation to God, we see in verse 1 of chapter 5. And we see that priests are vital to worship, that we cannot worship God apart from a priest. And then we saw that there are weaknesses with human priests. Human priests are beset with weakness. And the concept there is that they are are completely surrounded and both outside of themselves and within themselves. They are covered completely with weakness. And as a result, human priests are able to um, sympathize with those and and act gently with the ignorant and the wayward. But the weakness that all human priests share is the fact that they sin themselves. And we saw that in verse 3, that a human priest is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And we saw in Leviticus chapter 9 verse 7 and Leviticus 16 verse 6 that clear connection that there are instructions given to the Levitical priests to offer sacrifices not just for their own sin, not just for the sins of the people but for their own sins. So, we need a better priest. We need someone who is sinless someone who was able to stand before God. And that's where the argument comes in. The writer of Hebrew points us to seeing Christ as that superior priest. And what we're looking at here is his qualifications to be a superior priest. And what we spent the time looking at last week is he is qualified to be the superior priest because he is the son of God. Of God, And we saw in verse 5 of chapter 5 that Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
And so if you, we, I'm not going to rehash. We did through a lot of different stuff uh, last week when we looked at this. But so if you want to know the significance of the sonship of God as, resolve, as regards his priesthood, go back and watch last week's service. This week, we're now looking that there's a second reason why Christ is qualified to be a priest, a better priest, a superior priest. And he is qualified because he is sinless. Because he is sinless. Now, it's interesting to note here in chapter 5 of the book of Hebrews how the author seems to be making pains to point out the weakness of human priests. Human priests are chalked full of sin. They are beset with weakness. And as such, they are unable to offer a perfect sacrifice because they first have to offer a sacrifice for themselves. They're unable to provide the sacrifice that's truly needed. But then we see the writer of Hebrews pointing to two things about Christ. First of all, he quotes Psalm 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And then he quotes Psalm 110. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we already saw that this statement, you are, or the statement, the first one in Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you, it is a declaration of Christ's superior position as the Son of God. That within the Trinity, his equality with God qualifies him to be a superior high priest. But it is also a declaration of his sinlessness. Well, why is that? Well, Paul, Paul in Romans chapter 1 speaks of how Christ was declared to be the Son of God when? When He was raised from the dead. Look at what he says in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Paul is saying, this is what I'm writing about. I'm writing concerning the Son of God, His Son, the Father's Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the, whole, the Spirit of holiness, how was that declaration made? By His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, it's interesting to see what or how Paul describes the Spirit. Now, throughout the Scriptures, we often hear or see the term replied to, we think of the Spirit. What term do you usually think of when you think of the Spirit of God? It's the Holy Spirit. But that's not what we have here. We have it spoken of here specifically as the Spirit of holiness. This is unique in the New Testament. And in the original, it is not the same um, organization of the words or what we call the syntax as it is elsewhere where we see Holy Spirit translated. It is truly the spirit of holiness. Holiness is not a descriptor of the spirit, but rather it serves as an adjective. It serves to say that the spirit is the spirit of holiness. Now, 
It's not just simply saying that the Spirit is holy or that the Spirit is set apart from all other spirits in this passage, but rather it is pointing that in acting through raising Jesus from the dead, the Spirit is doing so in holiness. Now, why does that matter? Well, if we were to go to Isaiah chapter 6 and look at how God is described as the thrice holy God, there is a response from Isaiah to that great holiness of God. He says, I am undone. I'm ruined. Because He dwells with the people of unclean lips. And He has seen the glory of God. There is a recognition that Humanity, sinful humanity, cannot dwell with God. But what we find with Paul pointing to both the declaration that, God, that Christ is the Son of God through the resurrection, he is also declaring that the Spirit of holiness accepts Christ as he is. There is Now, I know this is hard for us to, to imagine because we think of God as three in one, and we think of, well, how can God accept God? I think what God is doing here is He is showing us, He's making a demonstration that Christ, when He raised from the dead, is shown to be sinless. Because the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of holiness, um, testifies to Christ's holiness by raising Him from the dead. The resurrection of Christ shows us that Christ is sinless. In Acts chapter 17, Paul again is, is preaching and he speaks about how God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. So what is the so holiness is an attribute of separateness. If we were to say what is the opposite of sin, it would be righteousness. And so the argument that Paul is making here in Acts 17 is that God has fixed a day where he's going to judge the world according to a sinless standard, a righteous standard, a standard that is not beset with sin. How is he going to do this? He's going to do this by a man whom he appointed. Who is this man? It's Jesus Christ. It's the Son of God. And of this, so the the fact that there will be a day when Christ will judge the world according to righteousness, He's given assurance of that by doing what? Raising Him from the dead. There is an aspect here of the resurrection of Christ that I think is somewhat... um, missed when we talk about the resurrection. We think of the resurrection as a moment of great hope, joy, and delight. And so it is for us as His people. But in Psalm chapter 2, where we see the statement, you are my son, today I have begotten you, which is, we're going to see in a moment, is a direct reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not a glorious or hopeful thing for those who continue to rage against God and against his anointed. He says, today you are my son, or you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then he goes in to talk about how Christ 
will rule the nations with a rod of iron, that He will take those who rise up against the Father and rise up against the Son, and He will dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. The resurrection of Jesus Christ shows that He has met that righteous, sinless standard and that as doing so, He will now stand in judgment on the entire world and He will judge them according to that standard. I think sometimes when we talk to people, we hear people talking about, you know, well, why, what's going to happen when you get to heaven? What are you hoping in? And oftentimes people will talk about, well, I'm hoping that Someday when I go to heaven, you know, or I stand before God at the last day in this final judgment, that my good will outweigh my bad, and that that will be what, what you know, so I'll try to do, have more good than bad in my life, and that's why God will let me into heaven. Here's the problem with that. Who is the one who's setting that type of standard? It's us. Do we set the standard? Who does? The Father does. And what is that standard? It is the sinless righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that Christ is made sin for us who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. You, you see how important that is. Because the only standard that we will be judged by on the last day is the standard of Christ's righteousness. And by turning to Christ in faith, that standard is ours. That's our great hope. For Christ to judge the world righteously, He must be righteous and He must be alive. And so the resurrection of Christ demonstrates His sinlessness. And this is what the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 5 is pointing us to. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. When did this happen? When was the begetting of Christ? It was at His resurrection. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verses 28 through 33. Again, we have another sermon describing the life of Christ. Notice what it said here as, they, as the sermon is preached. And though they found in him no guilt. Did you notice this morning when we read through the crucifixion account how often Pilate, how often Luke points out the fact that Jesus had no guilt. Though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Christ died. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who would come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you good news of what God had promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. There is a clear demonstration of the Sonship of Christ and His sinlessness through His resurrection from the dead. Now, why is this important? 
Why does the author of Hebrews point us to this? Because it separates Christ from every other human priest. He is not beset with weakness. He has never had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. And as a result of that, he is able to be a perfect high priest for us. Christ's resurrection is also a demonstration that death itself has no claim on him. In Romans chapter 6, Paul, we know this passage very well. Romans chapter 6, Paul speaks of how the fact that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death has no dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to what? To sin. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, why is this important? Why, why is the fact that Christ died and rose again? What's the point that Paul is making here in Romans chapter 6? Well, if we were to go to the very last verse of Romans chapter 6, Romans 6 verse 23, we know this by heart, for the wages of sin is what? It's death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How is it that Christ is able to free us from death? Well, He died. But did He die because of sin? His own sins? No. And the resurrection that he has is an indication that sin has no power over Christ because he is sinless. And as a result, he is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God by him. By dying a death he did not deserve and rising from the dead as a visible declaration of his sinlessness, Christ is able to free us who are subject to lifelong slavery to sin and death. In fact, turn back just a few pages in the book of Hebrews to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10 through the end of the chapter. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them what? Brothers. Remember how we talked about God has sent His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ into our hearts, whereby we are able to cry out, Abba, Father, that we, by our union with Christ, the Son of God, we are now, what? Sons of God. And so, the writer of Hebrews shows us that as 
his brothers. Made Christ's brothers through his sacrifice, he is not ashamed to call us brother. This floors me. I mean, just think about this last week and how many times in your thoughts and in your actions you rebelled against a holy and righteous God. And yet, because you are in Christ, the Son of God calls you His brother. What a glorious hope. And so it it results in praise in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Now here's the point. Since, therefore, the children, all right, we who are the children of God, the sons of God, we share in flesh and blood. Now remember what was said in Hebrews 5. Every priest among men is weak. What did Christ do? He came in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you see the significance of what the writer of Hebrews is saying here? Notice what he says about human priests in Hebrews 5. He says in verse 2 that a human priest can deal with How how does a human priest deal with the ignorant and the wayward? He deals with them gently. Why? Because a human priest is beset with weakness, flesh and blood. And he has his own sins to atone for. Christ's coming in the flesh allows him to be a merciful and gentle high priest. He doesn't come and immediately strike us with the rod of iron that He rightly has. He comes as a humble servant. He comes as one who gently calls His people to Himself. I mean, have, have you ever thought about the fact that Christ had such power and such righteousness and such holiness that he could have the minute that Peter has the audacity to rebuke him, he could have said, that's it, and Peter would have disappeared. Is that how Christ deals with Peter's weakness? No. 
He rebukes his sin, but he lovingly corrects his brother. He lovingly cares for his people. And so Christ, who is sinless, is not beset with the weakness of sin, but he came in flesh and blood so that he could, as he says in verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 2, help us when we are tempted because he partook of the same things. So we have a high priest who is sinless yet merciful. We have a high priest who is perfect yet gentle in how he cares for his people. And so the argument that he's driving to is this wonderful hope that Christ is doubly qualified to be the better priest. He's been declared the Son of God, and He's been demonstrated to be sinless through the resurrection. This is where we are able to find that He is the only one qualified to fill the priestly office needed for eternal salvation. So is Christ qualified to be the better high priest, the superior high priest? Yes. But there's still something else that the writer of Hebrews points us to in Hebrews chapter 5. Not only does Christ need to have a better position as the Son of God, a sinless nature, but also there's one other thing He needs to have, and that is He needs to be appointed as a high priest. Look at verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 5. No one takes this honor, the honor of being a priest, for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So what is amazing here to see is Christ meets all the qualifications. In fact, is there any other being in this universe that meets those qualifications? No. Christ is the only one who meets those qualifications. But yet, it still required the Father to appoint Him as high priest. And so, in verse 5, So also Christ did not exalt Himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by Him who said to Him, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. And He says also in another place, You, Christ, the sinless Son of God, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek having established Christ's qualifications through His inheritance of the name of the Son of God and demonstration of His sinlessness through the resurrection, the Father then declares Christ to be a priest. But it's not a priesthood after Levi. Christ does not find His descent from Aaron. In fact, from a... (laughs) It's interesting, from an earthly perspective, 
from a human perspective, Christ is not qualified to be a Levitical priest. He's not of that, gene- that genealogy. That's not where his descendants comes from. And so what priestly order exists that Christ, that Christ can be a priest and minister faithfully as is needed? And the answer is Melchizedek. Christ is appointed to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now here's the thing. We should be grateful that Christ is not qualified to be a Levitical priest from a genealogical standpoint. Why? Because what happened to all of Levi's descendants? They would be a high priest. He would be the high priest for a period of time. And then what would happen to him? He would die. Did he come back, the Levitical priest? No. And so Christ is not bound to a priesthood that is bound to flesh and blood. Christ is bound to a priesthood that is eternal. He's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this is essential to our salvation. As the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, being made perfect, he, Christ, became, did he become a source of eternal salvation? Did he become a, no, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, what does it mean to obey Christ? What is the commandment that Christ gives to his disciples? This commandment I have from the Father that you believe in me. That we put our hope and confidence completely in Jesus Christ. And as such, we now have a hope in the only source of eternal salvation. Because Christ, verse 10, has been designated by God a high priest after what order? After the order of Melchizedek. So how should we think about this? This is, this is a lot of strands of the Old Testament connected, a lot of theology packed together. How should we respond to this type of truth from God's Word? We have to recognize that we, left to ourselves, have 0% chance of saving ourselves. Now, why is that important for us to keep in mind? I mean, besides the obvious that, well, when we stand before God and we're not in the righteous standard, we will be judged. Besides that, I think it reminds us of the tendency to be self-righteous. We all have that tendency. We all have a tendency to look at the things we're doing and think that they are somehow what makes us right with God. We have a tendency to think better of ourselves than we ought to. We look not vertically at the standard of who Christ is, but we look horizontally. 
And we say, well, you know, I, I came to church on Sunday night. You know, or, or we look and we say, you know, I read my Bible every day and I know so-and-so, they only read it a few times a week. And we puff ourselves up and we look to ourselves and then we begin to take our standards and, and raise them to the level of, of what is gospel truth and, and that's wrong as well. And so why is it important for us to be reminded that Christ is the only source of eternal salvation? Because it calls us to reject hope in ourselves. Which we are so prone to do. And then, it should spur us on to take the only hope for the world and shout it from the rooftops. We have friends. We have family members. We have those that, that we work with that don't know the Lord. Their source of eternal salvation is not Christ, and therefore, they have no eternal salvation. I mean, we live in a world today that wants to say that there can be many ways to one God. The Bible is abundantly clear. There is only one way to the Father, and it is through Jesus Christ. And we've seen that demonstrated here. Is there's only one Son of God, and it's Christ. And He's declared to be the Son of God through His resurrection and through God the Father's own proclamation there's only one source that is sinless, and it's Christ who is demonstrated to be sinless through the resurrection. But yet we live in a world that wants to tell us that, well, if someone doesn't believe in Jesus, that's okay. That's not what the Bible says. That's clearly not what the author of the book of Hebrews is arguing. And so we have to stand firm for that reality that Jesus Christ is the only source of eternal salvation to those who obey Him. Which brings us to that third thing we need to be doing, and that is calling the world to trust in Him. We need to be trusting Him. And we need to be calling the world to trust in Him. Because He alone is qualified to be the only source of eternal salvation because He alone is qualified to be a high priest. Again, this series is looking at the threefold offices of Christ, and this priestly office is at the heart of our salvation. It's not insignificant. It's not tangential. It's not some sort of, 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 sort of pie-in-the-sky theological thing that we need to think about. It is the very basis for why Jesus is our Savior. He is the only high priest that can bring us before the Father. And so, may we reject confidence in anything else. May we call the world to believe in Him, and may we ourselves grow in faith and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank You for Christ. We thank You, Father, that He alone is the one 
who can stand before you, doubly qualified as your Son and as the sinless Savior of the world. Lord, may we abandon our own self-righteousness. May we call the world around us to believe in Him. And Father, may we ourselves live lives dependent upon our great High Priest. Father, work in our midst through Your Spirit as only You can. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading His blood. Amen. I am done six minutes early, so mark it down. All right? I, I, the service this morning went really long, so I guess it sort of evens itself out. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.